Legendarium podcast. Today is another Author Shelf episode. The Author Shelf, as you recall, is where we bring on uh, one of your favorite authors and have a discussion with them in a little bit different way. This is not your typical interview. Instead, we ask them to pull a book from their shelves, something that is... Uh, that has had an impact on them in some way. Maybe it inspired their own writing. Maybe it was just formative in their, you know, young reading lives, whatever the case may be. Uh, so that's what we're doing today. I'm your host, Craig Hanks. With me today is Ryan once again. Hello, Ryan. Hey there. And uh, our guest today, Shannon McGuire. Uh, Shannon, Hello. welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And the, the book that you've selected uh, is The Last Unicorn. And... Boy, are we going to get there? It's a it's a heck of a book. It's a heck of a story, um, a a venerable fairy tale by this point. I think it's fair to say. Um, but before we talk about that, I do want to remind people uh, to go to thelegendarium.com. If you enjoy this episode, you want to hear others. You can find our back catalog organized by uh, by topic, by author there. Uh, you can also find links to Discord to join in the conversation. Patreon, if you really enjoy what you hear and you want to support what we do at the Legendarium, we appreciate that as well. But I also want to tell people that, uh, Shannon, you have something coming up. It's Into the Windracked Wilds, coming up on October yes. 25th. But this is not by Shannon McGuire. No. So this is one of your, what we call it an open pseudonym, right? Uh, A. Deborah Baker. So yeah. Yep, that is book three in A. Deborah Baker's Up and Under series, which is a series of middle grade fantasies written by a woman who doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, writing them has been fascinating because it's not, I have another pseudonym. I'm also Mira Grant and Mira Grant writes bio, bio, biomedical science fiction, political thrillers. And then uh, A. Deborah Baker just writes straight up middle grade. But A. Deborah Baker lived and died in the early 1900s. So I have to try and write these books in a very archaic style without using language that was common at the time that you find scattered across the Wizard of Oz and other books that were released in those days that is not going to fly well with modern audiences and that I am personally not comfortable spending a lot of time dwelling on. That's quite a tightrope. Um, it is. It's super fun. We're, we're gonna you know it, it sounds like a, a writing exercise or something that could be a lot of fun um and we'll talk more about into the Windracked wilds uh and and the entire trilogy i suppose um when we get to the end of this episode but for now let's talk about the last unicorn by peter s beagle okay now uh this book what what did it come out in 1970 gosh i want to say 1968 68 oh my gosh so it is venerable at this point, um, even more venerable it, it than really myself. Uh, and it's the story. I'll, I'll just give everybody a quick recap. If, if you're worried about spoiling this 50-year-old book, 55-year-old book, uh, well, go read it, I guess. But the story is uh, it's essentially a fairy tale about, yes, the last unicorn. She lives in the woods alone uh, and discovers that she may, in fact, be the last unicorn. She didn't care before, but now that she knows, she wants to find out, are there others? Am I really the last one? She goes on a quest to find uh, others like her. And in so doing, she picks up some companions along the way, a hapless wizard, uh, or uh, what do you call himself? A, not a wizard, but a, a sorcerer or he's magician. A sorcerer. And, uh, he's less hapless than he is sort of mm. someone trying to water daisies with a fire hose. <laughs> there you go. Um, and, uh, and a woman who uh, is, shall we say, uh, somewhat intimidating sometimes. She's a, she's a delightful character. She, so the unicorn picks up these uh, companions, goes about the quest, trying to find the Mad King and the Red Bull who hold the answers to all of her questions in the meantime she's turned human and must you know find a way to live with that and potentially get changed back to unicorn form and in the end everybody lives happily ever after or do they or can they and it's a it's a really delightful uh, lovely story and i do encourage everybody to read it that, that's my my spoiler from my opinion at the end of the episode is yeah it's good i liked it uh, but the first question i want to ask you shannon is why did you pick this book so when I was asked if I wanted to come and do this particular podcast, I was told that I should select something that had had a large impact on my life. Mm -hmm. uh, the Last Unicorn was made into an animated feature in 1982, 
which was written by Peter S. Beagle. Um, I didn't see it in 1982. I was way too young. It is a fairly intense cartoon. You should not be showing it to four-year-olds. Uh, but it was out there. It was floating around. And I was part of the first generation that had access to VHS machines in the home. Mm -hmm. So I saw The Last Unicorn for the first time probably when I was around eight. And by that time, it had already had a huge impact on my life, although I didn't know it, because the success of the animated Last Unicorn, which is a very modest success, the cartoon was actually considered a failure by a lot of people, but it caused toy makers to realize that there was a market for fantasy in toys that were aimed at girls. And a woman named mm -hmm. Bonnie Zacherly was able to finally use this to push her creation all the way to market. She was the mother of My Little Pony. Oh, awesome. Um, My okay. Little Pony is, without question, the single most important franchise to who I am as a person. Uh, Generation One My Little Ponies were my entire childhood. They are still all over my freaking desk. Wow. Amazing. Um, to You're... this day, I have a massive collection. And you can draw a direct line from The Last Unicorn to My Little Pony existing. Well, so. this is, first of all, you're my six-year-old daughter's new hero. Uh, but also, Ryan, this should sound very familiar, right? Uh, it, the, the line I often use is, uh, dude, I was breastfed on Star Wars. Like, you know, Star Wars was in my blood from when I was a little kid. Um, and to have something that, that, that's, that, uh, that's that universal and formative from such a young age, right? Uh, that, that's you, right, Ryan? Yes, Absolutely. Yep finding that connection to a piece, especially something that really, honestly, I, my, my, the way that I think and the way that I view the world has been so heavily affected by early, early uh, media that I consume, whether it be Star Wars or fantasy, things like that. It's just so much of who, who I am and what I see the world that, you know, connecting to that, you know, that sort of sense of here's kind of that beginning is it, it, it's a really cool thing when you can actually go back. And I don't think a lot of people actually can do that with, why am I the way I am today? Like we can actually point back to specific things that influenced us to that, uh, to our loves today. Right. Right. Uh, now, Shannon, what is it about unicorns? Maybe we just, uh, we start with that 30,000 foot view. What is it about unicorns that, that has held your attention for decades now? I'm actually not super into unicorns. <laughs> a unicorn is just a horse with a sword stuck to its head. So they are either an extremely phallic symbol that is not super my bag, or they are an angry predator. A horse is a couch with anxiety. A unicorn is a horse with anxiety and a knife. <laughs> it is a couch with anxiety and a knife. And that's just not great. Um, my Little Pony held my attention because of the huge fantasy stories that were told by the franchise and that I could use to tell on my own. And once I actually encountered the story of The Last Unicorn, first in movie form, uh, because I was a kid, and then in book form, that held my attention because it is an incredibly intensely human story. You know, the unicorn is not human. She is explicitly an outsider to the human experience. But when she becomes human, she has to try and figure out what that means while she's moving through this world of people that are alien to her, whose experiences are not her own, whose motivations she can't quite grasp. And although it took a long time for us to actually put a label on it, because I was a little girl in the 80s and little girls in the 80s didn't get those kind of labels, uh, we did figure out once I hit adulthood that I am in fact an autistic person. So being an autistic person moving through a world of neurotypicals, I'm a unicorn all the time. Like, what the hell? Why? Why is this important? Why are you saying this? You know, one of the requests I was given for this podcast was that we not swear a lot because we want to keep it PG. I can respect that and I can follow that rule. But anyone who thinks that your children have not heard swear words, if you're listening to something in the car with them, is deluding themselves. And so I don't quite understand the point of that sort of things. Um, so that is what has held my attention to that specific unicorn. But unicorns in general, I can take or leave. Right. Well, the swearing thing, hey, hey it's not just for the kids, right? It's not just about the kids. Um, no, I understand that. Uh, it's... I... I in, in most respects, probably neurotypical. Uh, and so I, I didn't have the same kind of struggles, uh, but, it, but it is something that through a story like this, perhaps I can uh, do my best to understand what it would be like uh, to be in those shoes mm -hmm. as a kid, uh, you know, in the 80s or today for that matter. 
Um, and so, yeah, stories like this are, are really valuable that way. Ryan, I, I want to kick it to you and just ask you um, how how it went for you reading this book. Did you enjoy it? Did you did you have a good time with it? I did. I did enjoy this one. Um, and I, I'm glad that we already really established the, the concept of fairy tale in this, because the first thing I was like uh, when, when Craig talked to me about uh, doing this episode was like the last unicorn. I'm like, oh, OK, I, I, I remember there's a movie about this. I, I don't know how long this book is. And just seeing it was about 90, about 90 ish pages or so on the, the version that I found. I was like, OK, it's a shorter story. Um, well, let's see how this goes. I can go through this. And as I was reading through it, it took me back to similar feelings that I carried with uh, my first read through on Pradane, um, where it's a very, there, there's some beautiful depth to uh, some of the, the character story, the character uh, moments in the story. Um, but ultimately, it's couched inside of a fairy tale. There's there's a sense of wonder and magic around it that that kind of makes the human story a little more palatable. And so, as an adult reading it, I can go through and really enjoy uh, the exploration of, you know, what does it mean to be human? As you talked about, you know, when she gets to the end and she realizes that she's felt regret and love, and she's dealt with these different aspects. You know, that's a, you know, as a, maybe a, a six or seven or eight year old, you know, reading the story or something like that. That's not the story they're likely to pull out, but they're going to really enjoy the, the wizard, you know, the sorcerer, Schmendrick and, and all these pieces, you know, those sort of elements. And so <laughs> what a name, Schmendrick. I, I connected this very much, uh, very similar feelings to this as I did with um, Chronicles of Perdane. Just a wonderful story that has some great depth to it if you need it, but also some fair, wonderful magic for those who may not be inclined towards, uh, we're not able to process those those deeper elements. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sean, um, you've you've given us a reason why it was important to you uh, at that time and at, at that age as a younger person. Is this a story that you continue returning to? Is this a story that you've oh, read yes. in your adulthood? And and if so, why? What what is it as an adult that kind of keeps you coming back? So a thing that we like to say in my group of friends when talking about the books or the movies or whatever that were important to us as children is that sometimes in the night, the suck fairy comes. You'll be re-experiencing something that really, really meant, meant a lot to you. And you will suddenly discover that there is this huge vein of sexism or racism or imperialism in the middle of this story that you literally did not have the context to see when you were nine or 10, when you go back to the last unicorn, the suck fairy never comes. It is a beautiful story about growth and forgiveness. And that is, is important. Uh, it's just so beautifully written the language. Um, did you just lose my video? Cause I just got a pop. No, you're good. Thing. You're good. The go language on. in the last unicorn is meticulous. Peter Beagle is a master of his craft. Um, in third grade, I memorized the whole first chapter for an elocution class. Oh, wow. You know, so I go back for the language and I go back for the things that I sometimes think about differently as an adult than I thought about when I was a child. You know, the happy ending cannot come in the middle of the story. Hmm. It took some time to figure out what those things meant. And once I get it, once I started to get it, it, it meant so much. You know, heroes know that things must happen when it's time for them to happen. A quest cannot simply be abandoned. Unicorns may go unrescued for a long time, but not forever. There's just so much hope in that and so much essential cultural context. Peter Beagle was remixing and recalibrating and re-including all of these things he had grown up with, and he never talks down to his audience. The Last Unicorn is a book for adults that is accessible to children. I will hand it to a 10-year-old with no hesitation if it's a 10-year-old who likes to read. Um, frankly, I'll hide it to a 9- or 8-year-old, but only if their parents know me really well, because otherwise they might get mad. <laughs> why, why would they get mad about this book? I'm, I, because I can't it think is of anything terrifying that... at points. Let's see. So the, the most terrifying point for me was the the initial confrontation with the the red bull although i guess there is uh what's her name mommy mommy, mommy fortuna. fortuna yeah mommy the fortuna the unicorns ran scary. down all the roads long ago and the red bull ran close behind them and covered their footsteps 
fantasy fans of, I would say anywhere from 40 to 70, you say that line to them, they will start throwing things at you. Just, it is <laughs> so viscerally embedded in a thing that horrifies us as children. Well, and it's, I think it's valuable to have, to have something, if not, if not um, outwardly gruesomely horrifying, it's good to have something that's dark and, and terrorful, I maybe mm-hmm. is a better word than terrifying, um, to have that introduced at a young age introduces something that the unicorn herself has to live with uh, for eternity once we get to the end of the book. This, this idea that, no, not everything is, uh, not everything is sunshine and rainbows and, and My Little Ponies, right? That she had to, uh, in, in her case, love and lose and she has to live with that for the rest of, uh, well, yeah, the rest of eternity. Um, and so with, so I, I have a nine-year-old. He's reading, he's actually reading Perdane right now, Ryan. So you'll, you'll enjoy that for him. Um, but I would hand him this book. And if he got to that point and said, dad, this is too scary, then, it's, you know, well, the world is scary sometimes. Keep reading and see what happens, you know? Yeah, I think it's going. unlikely that most kids would say it was too scary. I think their parents might say it was too scary. Right. Yeah, that's fair enough. There's some things, there's some of the, you know, some really great quotes and moments in there that if you stop and you think about them, it's a really kind of deeper, difficult, maybe some like mildly scary concept or things like that, that, you know, they can go through. There's one, um, like when you sit and think about it as an adult, the idea of uh, real magic can never be made by offering someone else's liver. You must tear out your own and not expect mm-hmm. to get it back. That's some very, very visceral language, um, ripping out your own liver, things like that. <laughs> but as an adult thinking about what you're actually saying, the sacrifice, what it means you have to be, be willing to sacrifice and give, it's a really, really good, it's a really, really good quote, a really good statement there. And I would really be interested to see I handed a, you know, handed a, a younger reader a highlighter and say, highlight the things that really stick with you and show me that, seeing how many of those, if they ever stuck with them or what would stick with them in this, in their read through. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of stuff that sticks with you, um, I, I do want to get back to some of the kind of the life lessons, but I, I do want to bring us down from that 30,000 foot view and get into the story a little bit more um, and some of the, the lines, the characters, you know, the, the structure, the writing, the, all that stuff. Yeah, Let me pull out a bit lived... of writing for you. What, okay. Go on. Go, the unicorn yeah. lived in a lilac wood and she lived there all alone. Which like is... Book, uh, that is the first line of the story. The book the starts with line, bangers yeah. and it never stops. <laughs> the, let me give you one toward the end um, that, that stuck out to me that was just like chef's kiss, perfect line. Um, Molly, let's see. The three of them floated up the air like, like milkweed plumes to the top of the cliff. Molly was not frightened. The magic lifted her as gently as though she were a note of music and it were singing her. Oh, and I, I, like, I kind of died and melted a little bit inside at a line like that. Um, yeah, I love a good line. Ryan, did you have any others that popped out at you or should we move on to something else? Uh, I just need a minute to pull my notes on that one. Hold on. Oh, okay. Sean, I'm guessing you've got some others. I, I would bet you've where got some Where have you been? Damn you, where have you been? Uh, so part of why The Last Unicorn is so important is the character of Molly Grew, who is our central human female, is not a young woman. She is now the, she is in the book, The Age That I Am Now. And mm. when the unicorn appears to her, she basically just melts down on her going, where have you been? You know, what good is it to me that you're here now? Where were you 20 years ago, 10 years ago? How dare you? How dare you come to me now when I am this? I wish you had never come. Why do you come now? And that is something that is very much a part of the female experience in fantasy. We are only valuable during the period where we are a reward for heroes to win. You know, starting at around the age of 18 and then extending to maybe 25, women have a place in those stories. And then after that, they are used up and old and thrown out. You're too old for unicorns, but you're too young for the graveyard. 
And Molly Grew was the first time I had actually seen that explicitly addressed in a fantasy story. Molly Grew, yeah, she's the the word I was looking for earlier was formidable. She's a very formidable character. I, I quite enjoyed her. Um and and that line, that moment stuck out to me as well. And also when we finally do learn what her age is and what her circumstances are, I had a similar thought, which is, wow, this is it's refreshing to have a, a book that is it's a fairy tale. Um, you say it's written for adults, but it, you know, it's accessible to children. Um, and it, it is unusual to have characters who are, like you say, in their, what's she in her, uh, upper thirties, maybe something like upper, that. Uh, upper thirties, early forties. Right. Something like that. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, it stood out to me that here's a character who had been through it already. Like life had chewed her up and spit her out in a lot of ways. Um, and then this thing that could have fixed it all uh when she was younger you know when she wished for such magic in her life that time in her life had long since passed um and so yeah it's a, it's a really beautiful moment i thought for her yeah uh ryan what what you got yeah so um there's a a little phrase inside of so when schmendrick releases her because he's the only one who sees her for what she truly is early in the story uh, she learns that yeah, humans don't see her as a magical creature anymore. They just see her as a white mare. And um, but Schmendrick, as a as kind of his own little hidden magical creature, sees that she's a unicorn and is trying to convince her that she, he wants to help her, that he is a friend. Um, and he goes through. Um, I, I paraphrase this a little bit. Says, I know exactly how you feel, Schmendrick said eagerly. The unicorn looked at him out of dark endless eyes and he smiled nervously and looked at his hands it is a rare man who is taken for what he truly is he said there is much misjudgment in the world now i knew you for a unicorn when i first saw you and i know that i am your friend yet you take me for a clown or a clod or a betrayer and so must so must i be if you see me so um jump down a little bit there and he says we are not always what we seem and hardly ever what we dream oh, oh. that's a line right there yeah that was that's gorgeous. Um, and just in the context of him trying to win her trust a little bit to say like, no, I am your friend here. And there's a lot of things that I am, a lot of things that I'm not. And I, I'm somewhere, the truth is that I'm somewhere in the middle here, but I am your friend and that much you can trust. I, I, that, that line is going to stick with me for a while. I, I don't know if now is the time that I want to get into it, but I want to come back to that concept of, of friendship because that's it's a a word that he uses a lot uh, mm -hmm. the character of schmendrick um and that is kind of it, the the concept of friendship and loyalty and love and uh, these things are recurring and and it really comes to a point at the end of the story um but i i want to i want to bring up something else and we can get into maybe some other characters in a moment but uh for some reason it popped into my head and I want to talk about it before I forget about it. And that's the way that the story is actually uh, structured or written. You know, so often we, we uh, talk about on this podcast, we have stories, contemporary fantasies and sci-fi stories that are told with a, a really strict point of view character, you know, or characters and it'll switch between them or whatever. In this one, we get my beloved cherished coveted omniscient narrator mm -hmm. who bounces around between all of these characters and so you don't you don't have to wait for a paragraph break to switch to a different character's pov um and and i i just love it i miss stories like this i i crave stories like this and i think it, there's a certain permission structure here for this to be used um and and excused by some people because it's a fairy tale um mm -hmm. And because it's so, uh, what's the what's the opposite of concrete? <laughs> the whole story is very magical and nebulous and and not not grounded, uh, but in a delightful way. And and that gives a permission structure for the narrator to just tell you the story without having to be in somebody's head all the time. Um, but I, I don't know, Shauna, what do you, what do you think of that idea? I love an omniscient the, third. I do feel like The Last Unicorn is, as you say, nebulous. There is a magical quality to it. But at the same time, 
everything hangs together, it progresses in a linear fashion, and there are consequences for choices, which is one of the really important things if you want to have that omniscient third, you can't use that to just evolve into nonsense. It is going to lose people, especially modern readers. I also love an omniscient third, but they are so out of fashion right now that it's very hard to get reader buy-in on them. But they are more common in that kind of fairy tale space. Um, yeah. You encounter them also in the book One for the Morning Glory, which I would say is one of the only stories that's kind of in that same adult fairy tale with weight to its space as The Last Unicorn. You don't hit it as much with uh, T. Kingfisher's Nettle and Bone, which is the more recent addition to that space. Dude, you got to get off me. You weigh 28 <laughs> pounds. It 28 pounds? Is that a dog or a cat? He's a Maine Coon. He is the largest oh, yeah. breed of cats. So he's just being heavy. A anybody who's listening to this and not watching on YouTube has missed the cat uh, who's kind of stealing the show around here. And I'm, I'm here for it, frankly. He is a very large Maine Coon with a very severe anxiety disorder. So we have to keep <laughs> him shaved. And then he wears human clothes to keep him from licking himself raw. It's super fun. <laughs> I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> oh well sounds like a delightful cat anyway i'm sorry that you got interrupted you were saying yeah no uh, i i love the third person omniscient it's one of my favorite points of view i think you are correct that it's employed very nicely here yeah yeah um ryan should we talk about schmendrick just so that we can say schmendrick a bunch of times hey yes. uh, i'm wrong with that you know what I mean? Like, what uh, of all the names in fantasy, this is the one that I kind of laughed at the most and then struggled with only from pronunciation. Just, you know, I I, I don't read aloud to myself, but if I wanted to, I, I was talking to Sarah about my wife, about, you know, the book I was reading. And I was like, yeah, and there's this magician. His name is, his name is, <clears throat> his name is Schmendrick, <laughs> you know, and I was struggling to actually, actually be able to say it. Uh, but what a guy, what a guy. What'd you think of Schmendrick, the, the magician? I, I love Schmendrick. Um, I think he's one of our purer influences in the story. I mean, which is saying something when you're next to a unicorn, which is usually a, one of the most pure essences there. Um, but especially as you go along, you talked about earlier, you know, his, his connection with the unicorn and, and friendship and really trying to make sure that he's that he is a friend there uh, as they interact with Prince uh, Lear, Lear, I might say. Uh, who, who hilariously becomes King Lear. Okay. King, All yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but in the end, kind of Schmendrick showing that final sacrifice of giving up his immortality to save and to put her back into her form. Like that's, that's a huge sacrifice. Isn't uh, that what he wanted though? He, he, he wanted, he, spends the story kind of lamenting his immortality because it comes along with his inability as a magician. Yes. I, I don't know, Sean, and what, what do you make of this guy? Yeah. So I think it is important to note as we discuss Spendrick and, and really the story as a whole, that Peter Beagle is Jewish and is thus writing from an extremely Jewish point of view. And mm. this idea that you want to live forever, that you should have continuity of self for all eternity is not a Jewish approach to this sort of story. You'll find that almost everyone in the story, with the exception of the unicorn, who is explicitly established not to be a human and not to feel regret, not to feel a lot of the things that humans feel until she spends some time as one, anyone you meet that's immortal is either regretting it or wants out. So Schmendrick does rip out his own liver to accomplish the magic, but he rips out the cancerous liver. And that is still a valid sacrifice. That was still a valuable thing that people would have paid him a lot of money for. But him giving it up is less about losing something and more about validating the philosophy that's behind the entire book. That sometimes the world has to move on. Sometimes you have to allow the tower to fall. Sometimes you have to take that next step into the future because holding on to the past forever is just going to break stuff. And it, it's... And I like what Ryan brought up that he has a sort of purity about him uh, through almost the entirety of the story uh, that it's not, he's not a wise man. That's not to say he's a dumb man, but he's not a very wise man. He seems kind of perpetually stuck in, you know, whatever 
uh, place he's in, which is a place of, of purity. Um, but then when we get to the end of the story and he does take control of, uh, you know, his, his abilities, he, 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 you know, gains his magical abilities, rips out his liver and all that stuff. It also changes his character for that last chapter. Um, well, the last chapter and a half, I suppose it is. He's a changed man. He's very different. And he, mm-hmm. the way that he talks to other characters, the way he talks to, um, I'm sorry, the woman, her name is, uh, Molly, uh, Molly, gosh, Molly grew. I can't, I can't believe I forgot her name, but yeah, when he's talking to Molly, when he's talking to Lear, uh, he's talking to the townsfolk, he dispenses wisdom in an entirely different way where it's like the world the the experiences experiences of the world have actually been allowed to catch up to him now that he is mortal um and it's very similar with the the unicorn's experience with mortality as well uh but i was i was really struck by that difference in his character from it was like night to day mm-hmm. after he takes control of the magic um okay so we should also talk about the unicorn okay we've talked about a few of the characters around the unicorn we should talk about the unicorn and you know what her journey through mortality was and and uh, how it went for her and what it means to us so to just give people a, a quick recap the uh th- there's a great bit of foreshadowing at the beginning of the book when schmendrick is talking to her and he talks about the unicorn who was turned into a human by a wizard with the best of intentions and you're like okay i think i know what's coming up a little later in the book sure enough in order to save her from the red bull um schmendrick turns her into a human uh the red bull is hunting unicorns and so he doesn't he i don't know he is it gendered i can't remember but the the red bull doesn't care about humans and so now that the unicorn is gone it just walks away but now the unicorn uh lady althea mouth yeah uh now is um is uh, free to walk about and even live in the same castle as where the red bull resides um but also you know is no longer immortal she's now a human and has to deal with that what where where do we where do we want to talk about this what does this mean for the unicorn uh i guess maybe would be the first question what what does this actually mean to be human there's the comical stuff, learning how to walk, you know, uh, kind of looking a little awkward uh, when she first has to learn how to walk. Um, but, you know, she picks it up quickly enough, but that doesn't mean that she's a human. What, Shannon, what does this mean that she has to learn humanity? I mean, over... part of the conflict is that she did not consent to this. Hmm. Schmendrick decided to save her in this manner without asking her if this was an acceptable thing to do. He did a horrible thing to her quite honestly, uh, because she never gets to just be a unicorn again. So it is a very good metaphor for your experiences will change you. And it doesn't matter if they are experiences that you voluntarily had, or if Mm. they are experiences that were thrust upon you by someone else. Yes, he had good reason. He had excellent motivations for what he did. But we don't know that there wouldn't have been a way for her to get out of the sea. Maybe she was the absolute, you know, straw that breaks the camel's back of unicorns in the water and the Red Bull wouldn't have been able to keep them all contained. So once she's human, it becomes very clear that humanity will influence you, that the experience of aging, you know, what have you done? I can feel this body dying all around me, will change you, will affect you. And that's part of why Schmendrick changes so dramatically at the end of the book when he's not immortal anymore. He had forgotten some of what it was to be human. And over the course of her time as a unicorn, the unicorn forgets some of what it is to be a unicorn. Even when she goes home, she says, I'm not like them. I know regret and I have known love and she can never just be a unicorn again. The, on the issue of Schmendrick changing her, I, I'm a little unclear, uh, you know, I'm moving through the book pretty quickly. And so I'm happy to just be unclear on this, but when he changes her it's he allows the magic to work through him right and so the magic does as it will Uh, i didn't read it as schmendrick deciding here's how i'm going to save the unicorn like it or not it was more allowing the magic to do its thing and the magic decided you know to to change her um 
I've just, I, you know, I, I'm tempted to judge Schmendrick too harshly, but I'm not sure if I should for that. Uh, so does that make sense? Whether the, whether the intention was I'm going to do this specific thing or not, the unicorn didn't say Schmendrick, Schmendrick, save me. She didn't say hmm. only you and your powerful magic can protect me from this red bull. <laughs> sure. She was there. He made a choice. He said yeah, magic to allow something well. to happen. Exactly. And whether he thought that would be the outcome or not, it was still done without her consent, without any discussion. I don't feel that we should judge him completely harshly. I love Schmendrick. But I do feel that it's important to acknowledge that the unicorn becoming human, part of what makes that journey difficult is that there was never a point where the unicorn got to go, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go hang out in the bathy pelagic with the other unicorns. Peace. <laughs> sure. Uh, which, yeah, it, it would have been a, in the moment, uh, you know, obviously a, a very difficult thing to, you know, decide in sound mind, right? But uh, no, but I, I think I take your point uh, to take your point really well. All right. So the unicorn is now human. Um, she and her companions uh, go and live in the castle of King Haggard, a very interesting character. Um, but in the course of this, so King Haggard has an adopted son, Prince Lear, Prince who Lear. falls in love with the unicorn. And kind of, uh, you know, love at first sight is just the most beautiful person I've ever seen, whatever. Uh, so he's smitten with her and goes on a months long quest to gain her attention and her affection. Um, and, uh, you know, he goes and does all of the, the normal princely things. Um, and in the course of all this, you know, she's doing her very best to ignore him. Is there a moment, I, I help me out, is there a moment when we feel like she realized that, that she loved him as well? Or does that moment, narratively speaking, just kind of sneak up on us and, um, and, and you know, there's no lightning bolt moment? Yeah, no, narratively speaking, it is a very slow fade in, which is part of why it needs to be that way. You know, you mentioned Haggard. This story is about literally everyone learning to give up on what they think they have to have to be happy. The unicorn gives up her solitude and her, for lack of a better word, purity as a unicorn. Lear gives up his idealistic view of what it is to be a hero. Haggard has to give up his unicorns. Schmendrick gives up his immortality and the idea that he will someday be the most powerful sorcerer in the entire world. And Molly gives up a lot of her bitterness. You know, she gives mm. up the resentment that the world was not kind to me when I was younger and acknowledges that she still has all this time in front of her for the world to be kind to her in. So giving up a certain measure of that unicorn detachment of allowing herself to fall in love has to happen in a subtle fashion because otherwise, it's another heroic act on Lear's part. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ryan, what do you make of all this? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at that. I hadn't really thought through the, the sacrifices each, each person has to make in there. Um, but yeah, that, that really, does, really does kind of sit and, and uh, give focus to the, you know, the, main, the main through line of this book, uh, setting up you know, sacrifice and... and I thought it was interesting, specifically with King Haggard, like that his entire happiness is based on these unicorns being his and being trapped in, you know, he's got these here and possession and dominance. Yeah. Yeah. And the letting them go, put him into despair. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm having to no, move yeah, over this, this process a little bit because it's, it's a, it's a strong through line and, I think it's, I don't know. It, it, as, as with many of the best books, and a lot of the books that you and I, Ryan, have read for Author Shelf, um, as with many of the best books, I'm going to say this one will benefit a lot from rereads, um, okay. especially rereads that come uh, not back-to-back, -back, but you read it, give it a couple of years, read it again, see yeah. what's changed in you, and see how that changes in the book and all that stuff. Uh, because there's... Go on. Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. I, was gonna say, I know that this is a podcast about books and not films, but in the case of The mm. Last Unicorn uh, film, Peter Beagle wrote the screenplay, and it also helps with contextualizing some of the things like being able to watch Amalthea fall in love with Lear, having those visuals can really assist. Yeah. Well, we, we do talk about film more than we probably should because it's, uh, you know, 
faster than reading a book sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, no, I think that's that's really great. Um, I I am gonna go watch the movie now at some point. Good. Maybe today. Uh, we'll we'll see. Although I I have to say really quickly before I get back to my point, I was gonna ask Ryan another question, but I will say the one thing about this book that I found the most enchantingly written was and, and terrifyingly so was the description of the red bull uh and the chase of the red bull and how how it would turn and how it would fill up the sky and how it would shrink down to you know fit in the passageway with them and you know th- this thing that was more a force of nature than it was an actual animal um and as i i haven't seen the the animated film but as i was thinking about that i kept thinking how how would you how would you render this being uh, because I, I love the rendition of it so much in the book. In the nightmares anyway. of children for the next 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find out and, you know, maybe sleep poorly tonight. So we'll see. Um, but I, I want to take, I want to take the, the unicorn's uh, experience as a human and her love of Prince Lear and his love of her. Um, and you know, the, the love that, uh, that Schmendrick and Molly seem to build, you know, over the course of the story, it's never, you know, the, the story isn't about them falling in love necessarily, but there, there seem to be seeds of that at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also going back to the idea of Schmendrick telling the, the unicorn, I am your friend. I, if I know one thing, it's that I am your friend, right? Mm-hmm. Ryan, we've been friends for dear lord 25 years something like that i you know you you don't want to talk about it too often right but and this is a trick question why are we friends ryan (laughs) right let's see what Uh, you do with this well let's see um i don't i'm not actually expecting you to answer this question but i I am interested yeah i was gonna say let's see uh free stuff um yes absolutely no 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 okay let me let me tell you why and why you're struggling with this this is this is actually perfect um six eight months ago something like that i was chatting with a friend of mine and she asked that question you know we'd been friends for you know several years at this point and she said why why is it that you are my friend i you know what what have I ever done for you? Kind of was the implication. Why are you my friend? And at a certain point, I, I just I just had to say, because I am, because I'm your friend, because at some point I decided that that you are my friend. Um, luckily, you, you made the same decision, and that's wonderful. Um, but sometimes that's all it is when it comes to friendship. When it comes to love, it it defies description it defies easy categorization or understanding even um so there's a moment in the last chapter when the day has been saved you know whatever the unicorns are all freed and now king lear and schmendrick and molly they're wandering through the countryside they come across the town of hagsgate uh, which was formerly prosperous because of the curse of the witch and now it's destitute and you know crumbled all around the townspeople and he says um you may plant your acres again and raise up your fallen orchards and vineyards but they will never flourish as they used to never until you learn to take joy in them for no reason and the word reason was something that i i started to see popping up a lot Um, you know, maybe this is just because of where I'm at in my life and what I'm thinking about, but this for me was the great through line of the book was that, uh, there were characters who kept trying to impose order on things that defied order and Mm -hmm. reason and logic. And love was one of those things, love and friendship, you know, characters are always trying to understand these things. And at a certain point, at a certain point, the book says, stop it. All of this stuff is without reason and there's value in having some things just be enchanting in your life um, and, and without reason, you know, much like the, the imagery in much of this book is without reason. 
that's okay. Love it anyway. Enjoy it anyway. I don't know. Shannon, what do you make of this? Uh, there is a song by a band called The Neals called Easy People, which is about basically just, I don't want to have hard people in my life anymore. I want to have people that are easy for me. And that is a lot of where friendship and love come from. As you say, there's no reason you meet someone and either you're like, oh my God, ride or die, let's go. Or you're going, get away from me. And it can be someone everyone else you know loves. There's not a reason for these things. And you are correct. The book is very much about don't try to impose your order, but also don't only have the things you have because of what you expect to get out of them. Love can be just as bad as it is good if you only love your orchards because they give you apples and not because they are beautiful trees and a home for insects and birds and providing shade and all these good things to your life, why do you deserve the apples? If you only love a unicorn because it belongs to you and no one else, why do you deserve a unicorn? You probably don't. Yeah. Ryan, now why are we friends? <laughs> you're because you're a unicorn that i really appreciate that is correct that's the answer oh. i was looking for i'm your unicorn man you're my unicorn there you go all right <laughs> um let's let's do some final thoughts i i know we need to let both of you actually go in the next mm -hmm. few minutes and so let's just do a final thought from each of us on the book um ryan let me start with you um and we'll wrap up with Shannon after after I give a final thought. Ryan, go ahead. Yeah, no, I I know often for final thoughts, uh, kind of recommendations uh, on this, but I I I think that this is, like I said, it's not a long read, and I think a lot of people can benefit from it from the opportunity of of going through and reading it. And like we mentioned earlier, this is one that I, I'm going to be very frank for a moment here and say, in a lot of sense for people. I, or for me, at least, when you said I'm reading The Last Unicorn, my expectations were very different than what I got here. Mm. And please fight your instinct to be like, I don't want to read The Last Unicorn because it sounds childish or it sounds this, whatever. Fight that instinct because there are some beautiful messages in here. There's some wonderful things, and it's a very good story. Uh, don't let yourself get trapped into any sort of preconceived notion about this, but just go in fresh and really let it have its effect. Yeah. Uh, you know, that actually feeds really well into my final thought, which was I kept thinking as I was going through this book that like many of my favorite books, this is very much the the cave on Dagobah, Ryan. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know what I'm going to say? You know, what's in this book? What What is in The Last Unicorn? The same thing as is in The Cave on Dagobah. Only what you take with you. With you. Um, and it's, it's a book that rewards introspection as much as it does the reading of the actual text. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's extremely valuable that way. Shannon, final thoughts on the book. So final thoughts on the book. I think you've kind of gotten my thoughts on the book. I will say that Peter Beagle, the author is still alive and is one of those rare cases of, if you have the opportunity to meet your heroes, meet your heroes. He is one of... <laughs> the nicest, kindest, most thoughtful men I've ever met. You know, you meet him and you go, this is someone who could have written The Last Unicorn. I do think it is an important story to read or share with or show to children. Um, but it doesn't matter if you didn't get it as a child. It's still there for you. The unicorn is still in the lilac wood and she doesn't have to be there all alone. Well, very nice. What a, what a sentiment to wrap up on. Oh man, everybody go chase your unicorns, please. Um, your life will be all the richer for it. Even but if not you never into the catch sea. them. Well, okay, maybe not into the sea. Uh, let's not get carried away here. Um, no, that's wonderful. So, uh, all right, that's The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. I, I really do hope that if you haven't read it, that people will go check it out. Um, I was please delighted do. by it. Uh, now, Shannon, let's talk about Into the Wind Racked Wilds for just a moment. Um, and have I, I want you to sell us this book, okay? Uh, tell us about the series. Tell us about this book in particular and, and give us a little elevator pitch on it. So A. Deborah Baker was the greatest of the American alchemists during the period of her life and was attempting to control what's called the impossible city by changing the alchemical map of America. 
Unfortunately, L. Frank Baum did not like this because she was a lady-shaped person and that offended him, so he released the Oz books to rewrite her Alchemical America into his own. The Up and Under books are basically uh, A. Deborah Baker's primer, as was written in a fictional world. They are entirely what's called a postulatory, which means they don't exist. I am writing them because they are background material for a different series. Um, this is book three. I highly recommend it, but I also really, really recommend reading Over the Woodward Wall first, because if you start with book three, you're going to be very confused. <laughs> so, the, okay, so tell us again, book one is? Over the Woodward Wall. So yeah, people should go check that out. It sounds uh, it sounds very interesting. So is it is it in conversation then with uh, with Baum and the the works of the time or to a you... certain degree? Yes, I mean legitimately yeah. everything I have ever written is in conversation with the Last Unicorn. So that <laughs> is is kind of a dual conversation. Um, but these books are in conversation with Baum and with the rest of it. And also with my own Alchemical Journeys series, which is where they started. And the first of those is Middle Game. The Up and Under books are suitable for eight-year-olds. They are written as middle grade. You can hand them to a kid. Nothing in there is going to upset their kid. Don't do that with Middle Game. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, I hope people will go check them out. Um, and uh, Shannon McGuire, again, thank you very much for choosing The Last Unicorn, a book that I might not have chosen to read on my own but this, this is why we have the author's shelf and why i value it so highly thank you for I choosing am, such a wonderful book yep i am very glad to have made your life materially better <laughs> there you go um, and for everybody else thank you so much for listening again go to thelegendarium.com where you can join in the conversation support the podcast find previous episodes all that stuff ryan shannon thank you for the discussion and uh, i will see everybody next time Thank you for joining us. Bye.